2: We receive a small percentage of however much you pay for whatever you bought. Nothing extra for you, but a tangible contribution, if small, for us. You could also sign up for a free trial with the voluminous audible.com. We get something out of that too. We thank you for the support and allowing us to continue presenting Krishnadas's excellent talks.
1: You know, making a. I hope it's okay making a bit of a comparison between... Maharaji and Christ uh, during, well, Jesus when he was on the earth. My limited understanding is that when Jesus was on the earth, he would heal people just like you said Maharaji did. But it sounds from the teachings that he would do it, it had a lot to do with people's faith. And in previous workshops, I've heard you... Say that uh, there was at least one time when Maharaji didn't do anything about somebody's uh, life that he gave him a Hindu name that was kind of heavy and that it yeah, you seemed know, yeah. mm-hmm. you know it seemed to imply that something pretty dramatic was going to happen to him and maharaji didn't do anything and anyway, you know mm-hmm. I was just wondering, I know it's kind of a mystery well at least to me um But I'm just wondering, like, because if Maharaji helped a lot of people, healed a lot of people, but in maybe some cases didn't, if it has to do perhaps with that person's faith, just like in the writings about Jesus healing people,
3: I don't know. If if it was up to us, we'd all be dead already, you know. It's not up to us. Faith, what did St. Paul say? By grace was I saved through faith. Grace is first. If we, we already have grace, we wouldn't be on the path. Grace is functioning. Through grace, we get faith. So it's not up to us. We're asleep. When you're asleep, you can't do nothing. Somebody's got to wake you up. So that story you mentioned, uh, it's not quite, they didn't have that twist on it. See, there's, when a being, a great being is present for us, they're here only out of compassion. They have no reason to be here. They don't need anything. They don't need anything. They don't even need happiness. They are happiness. They are joy. They are truth. They, that's where they live. That's home. That's who they are. They're only here for us. So everything they do is for, in our best interest. Even if it appears that they haven't done something, that's only we can only see a very small little narrow vision. So in this case, there was a couple that came to Maharaji from New York, they were, had, kind of had this little satsang in New York around a woman named Hilda, even before we went to India. And, so they had been with Hilda, and they came to India, and, uh, Maharaji gave them a name, get names, Sunanda and Sudama. And, they were just part of the group. There was no, at that time, there was no thought about that at all. Sudama was Krishna's boyhood friend. Very nice name. So, um, uh, at one point, Maharaji jowed everybody and disappeared, which is what he sent everybody away, and he disappeared for the season. He went traveling, and nobody knew where he was. So they, they left, and they wound up going back to America, and they never saw him again. Uh, other people left and then came back. Some people went outside the temple, counted to 10, and then came back in. You know, it kind of, people that had different ideas what go away meant, you know. You could go away, but he didn't say, don't come back immediately. <laughs> and a lot of times people did that, and they got to, like, spend time with him, and other people had gone off and, like, were living in another city for three months waiting to hear about where he was. Anyway, that's a whole other Leela. Anyhow, so they left. Anyway, as time went on, uh, Sudama got very sick. He got to the point where he actually needed a heart and lung transplant, right? There was no oxygen coming to his system. He, could, he would like lie in bed all day. He could hardly get up out of bed. So now the story of Sudama is very interesting. Sto- Sudama was Krishna's boyhood friend, one of his best friends. And one day, they were in a, a, hiding from a rainstorm in a tree, up in a tree. And they fell asleep on the branches of the tree, Sudama woke up first, and he was hungry, so he ate his lunch. They used to carry their lunches with them when they were out with the cows all day. But he was still hungry, and Krishna was sleeping, so he ate Krishna's lunch. It's not a good idea to eat God's lunch. I mean, it's just not a good idea. So Krishna woke up and didn't didn't say anything. But because of the leela, because of the selfishness of that act... A lot of karma kicked in for Sudama, and as he grew older, he got became very poor and blind, and he was living in tremendous poverty. And in the meantime, Krishna left that area and went to uh, became a king, and lived in the palace and everything. Now, Sudama's wife was. Always on his case, you know, go see Krishna. You know, you, he loves you. You're his friend. He'll help us bring, ask him to help us. Look, we, look, we can't even feed our kids. But Sudama was so humble and he, ashamed that he just didn't want to go. But finally his wife said, look, here's this parched rice. This is all we have in the house. She put it in a, in a, in a, tied it up in a cloth and she said, go give this to Krishna and ask him to help us and don't come back unless you, you know, until it's done. So he had no choice. He had to go. So he made his way, and he's sitting outside the palace with the beggars, the rest of the, the other beggars who always sat out in the palace. And Krishna happened to come out. And he sees Sudama sitting there. You know, after, this is after a long time, many, many years. And he says, Sudama, well, how great you came. How great is this is. Come on inside. Let me show you around. Come on. Let's have something to eat. And he takes Sudama inside. And, and he says, did you bring anything for me? Did you bring anything? And Sudama's didn't want to even show him the rice. You know, it's the, the most poorest people's food is this parched rice, right? And he didn't, he said, no, come on, you must have something. Yeah, oh, you have rice. We used to eat this when we were kids, remember? And he gobbles it up and he's, anyway, he takes Sudama through the palace, blah, blah, blah. And, and then. He says, well, you know, you got to go because I'm a king. I got to do this other crazy stuff now. So I have to, you have to go. So Sudama, said, but please come back and visit me again. So now Sudama walks off, and he, you know, he's blind. He makes his way back to his village, and he, being blind, he kind of knows where to turn. You know, he knows he's trained, you know? and he feels this. There used to be this rickety old, rickety old fence there, and he knows he's in the right place. But there's this solid wall, right? He's like, I know I'm in the right place. But he's following the wall because it used to be the fence, and. What is this? What could have happened here? And then he gets to the point where his old broken down gate used to be, and there's like, he feels metal bars, you know, like a, a big metal heavy gate. And he said, What is this, you know? And his family sees him and they run out, and his wife says, Oh, look, Krishna turned our place into a palace. You must have asked for help. And he didn't. He was too ashamed, but Krishna knew what he needed, and he changed everything. So Maharaji names this guy Sudama. So now he's at this point where he's really sick, can barely stay alive. And I've been hanging out in India with this young Baba who uh, we called Moni Baba. Moni means silent. He didn't speak, and he hadn't spoken for many years. Uh, And I brought him to America, and we got to our friend's house where he was going to stay, and she told us about Sudama's condition. I had kind of gotten out of touch with him over the years. So the Baba says, first thing tomorrow, he doesn't say, he writes or something, first thing tomorrow, we're going. So we got up the next day, and we drove into Queens, and we rang the bell. We, we called him, let him know we were coming, we rang the bell. It took him like 20 minutes to get to the front door. He couldn't, you know, he, there was no oxygen, he could hardly move. And so he kind of crawled to the door and he opens the door and he greets us. And the Baba goes in and he sits down on the couch. And I sit down on the floor in front of him. And Sudama sits down next to me. And then he says, uh, Sing Hanuman Chalisa. So I sang Hanuman Chalisa. And Sudama's, you know, he can't sing, he has got no air, but he's mouthing the words. It was so intense and then we spent a little time there and then we left so that night uh, sudama called us i get on the phone and he thanks me he felt like he felt like maharaji had come back to him after all these years and kind of losing his connection and being so sick and everything he just he just felt so happy and he just felt he thanked us for coming and everything like that and the next day he was dead Now, Maharaji gave him that name. You know, He knew what was going to happen. And here's another thing. They asked Maharaji to marry them. And he said no. Other times he would just hit people on and said, you're married, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you know, You've been hanging out, doing the nasty, you're married. Go home, see your parents, get out of here. So... They asked Maharaji, They were already a couple; had been together for years. He said, "No, Krishnadasa will marry you." <laughs> so, we the next day we we had a little ceremony in front of the Hanuman Mandir, and we read from the Bible or something. I don't know what we did. And man and wife, okay. But I always felt, when especially looking back, you know, after this all happened, that. My f- understanding of the world I live in is that nothing, that everything that Maharaji does or doesn't do, in my, under- you know, what I see, has to be in the best interest of everybody involved. There's no other thing it could be. That's the world I live in, okay? You don't have to live there, but just give me that space to be stupid. That's the way I live. Everything, it has to be in the, And so he. When I thought, I felt that when he did not marry them, that he was going to let those karmas run. Oh, I forgot to tell you. (laughs) Sunanda was fought ovarian cancer for seven or eight years, and she died one year after Sudama. They had been separated already for many years. They had a son who died of an accidental overdose of heroin Six months after Sudama died. Within one year, they were all gone. There's. So, the question you asked, Maharaji knew that. He knew everything. He knows it was no problem. But for whatever reason, he allowed that to go on that way. It had to be the best way for them to work, live those karmas out. It had to be. That's the world I live in. I mean, he, I've seen him heal the sick people. I've heard stories of him bringing people back to life. Many stories, not just a couple. Many, many, many. Here's here's the story, one of the stories. There's so many miracle stories, but the story that I love the most is this story. Many, many years ago, Maharaji was visiting one of his devotees. And the devotee's granddaughter, who was eight years old, came running into the house. She had been next door... She had gone next door to visit her friend, and someone had died in the house and was laying there dead. And it was the first time she experienced death. And she came into the house crying, freaked out. And she ran to Maharaji crying. And he says, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? Ask me anything, ask me anything. So she said, Baba, this is an eight-year-old girl. She said, Baba, when I die, bring me back to life. So he didn't say anything. Many, many years later, maybe 40 years later, I I don't think I've read this story. It's in one of the books about Maharaji. Maharaji was somewhere at a relative of that devotee who had died. This woman was at her home with her husband. She was probably at least 50 years old now. And she was lying dead in the bedroom, essentially. And, or she was dying. She was very ill and dying. And this, her husband called the grandfather or some relative, and they said, you know, the only person who can help is Nim Kuroli Baba, but nobody knows where he is. Okay? By the way, no one else knew of what that little girl had said when she was 8 so he's in great despair he he's heard of Neem Kurali Baba he he himself had never met him but nobody knows where he is he called the family nobody knows there's a knock at the door it's maharaji he says the man says who are you he said you could see he's the baba he saying i'm neem Kurali baba and come in where's your wife Baba, she just died. She's in the bedroom. Take me to her. So he goes there. He looks at her for a minute. He says, do you have any grapes in the house? Yes, bring them to me. So he takes the grapes and he squeezes some juice out on a spoon and he puts the, some grape juice in her mouth and he says, she'll be all right now. And he leaves. And the woman woke up. She's okay. 40 years before, a little girl says, Baba, when I die, bring me back to life. Nobody reminded him. Nobody had to tell him. He shows up. He was doing this every day, 24 hours a day, all the time, one way or another. So this is the world that I live in and I try to remember this place all the time as much as I can chanting has developed into the practice that helps me enter this presence the most I've done all kinds of practices over the years and still do other things but just for the sheer amount of times that I've chanted with people, it's just developed this muscle, you know, to remember, this letting go muscle. Let go, remember, okay, come back. Over and over and over and over. This is where we live, where all the great beings live, where everybody who's ever been enlightened and everybody who ever will be, this is where we live in this place, in this presence. But we don't look, we don't remember. So we do practices to remind us to remember and, and to give us the strength to let go and come back again and again.
4: Um, so Maharaji says, in he asks the question, um, what is an, what, what is attachment for a saint? And I, there's no answer in any of the books.
3: It's a rhetorical question. That's why.
4: <laughs> right. <laughs> in other so, words, the saint has no attachment. Well, I I think that I think that the, compa- his, the compassion was the attachment.
3: You could say that because without some attachment, he used to say. No attachment, no body.
4: Right. And so, and no so. It,
3: moha, samsara is He said, no, without attachment, there's no samsara. There's no illusion.
4: And so, really, the the the, the, the devotees are um, 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 connect to to draw that attachment. Hold the mic a little
2: closer, please. The
4: the the. the um, his compassion is actually the for for the for all beings is is the is the attachment that. Um,
3: but there's really no attachment. I mean, it, it's an assumed attachment. There's no. If there was attachment, right, there would be personal pain. What is? There's no personal attachment. In other words, Nityananda said, "I experience pain, but not like you, because he does, He's not in a the body. There's no. He can." His body might hurt, but it's not his body. I don't hurt. The body hurts. So he can, they can deal with that. It's very different. It's not personal attachment. But they cultivate, in a sense, it's, the, it's a quality of, of the, an enlightened being. It's a natural compassion. It's a quality. But at no time are they fooled by appearances. Yes. So there's no real attachment there's no personal attachment, but there's...
4: There's no an, ego attachment. An
3: agreement that cultivate. This is what they call the bodhisattva vow in Buddhism, where you reach a certain stage where you no really longer have to be here. But you also recognize that everyone is a part of your own body, of this one being of which we all are all a part. And part of you hurts. So... You agree to stay for that part of you that thinks they hurt, even though you don't hurt anymore. You have to cultivate, make that vow to stay. Otherwise, when the attachment disappears, you're gone. You you can't remain informed.
4: Right. But do do you think it's like an ongoing? um, I can't hear you. Do you you think it's an ongoing um, um, practice, even if if you realized that, that
3: um, I don't know, maybe.
4: Here, here in, in, in this, in, in this time-space reality, um, there, well, you answered my question, thank in, you.
3: And here, in this space, yeah, it's an ongoing practice because it's not natural for us.
4: Even if you're a saint?
3: Well, what kind of saint are you talking about? There's many different levels of saints, right. they say. But for a Buddha, a fully enlightened being... Uh, there's no attachment whatsoever. And compassion is a natural expression of Buddha nature.
4: Thank you.
3: Probably. (laughs) (laughs) But I got to tell you, you know, really, growing up, as I always say, Jewish on my parents' side, I really didn't have much feeling for Jesus, you know, really. Uh, but in India, there's no problem. Jesus? No. Avatar, no problem. Yogi, great yogi. Great. They worship him. Maharaji said, I go to church every, Sunday, every Christmas. He goes to me, which is, there's no way that's true. <laughs> you know, on the physical plane, right? But when he spoke about Jesus, you could not stand it. It was too intense. The beauty, the depth of emotion. I mean, he cried. You know, it was like, you know, and he one time he looked at us, the Westerners, he said, you were all with Jesus. Yeah, like we're with you, right? That's the way it felt. I And the truth is that I had a... Some kind of block. You know, growing up Jewish and, and with a lot of Catholic friends and a lot of Christian friends, many more of them than there were of, of the Jewish people in, in my school and stuff, you really felt judged. And I'll never forget, I came back, I came to school one day and all my Catholic friends, they, they weren't in school. Right? This is a big thing when you're like in fifth grade or something, right? And they came back the next day. They were in some confirmation class or some cate- something going on. For the first time they went and they came back and they they would not look at me. They wouldn't talk to me. And finally one of them looked at me and said, You killed Christ. Me? I don't remember. How did I when did I do that? So I had an attitude, you know, and it was it affected my heart there was something like love could be over in india right love could be with krishna and ram and all those dudes and the goddess dudes ets <laughs> but love couldn't be anywhere else you know because of the miserable experiences i would had with but maharaji he just took that those those spears out of my heart. And they had to come out. It was going to be a problem because I would have still had this attitude because I'd been hurt so much by that. There's nowhere you can go, my friends, (laughs) where the shit that you're carrying around you is not going to screw you up. Come on. There's just no place you can go. We gotta look at it, we gotta deal with it, we gotta get rid of it. There's no two ways about it. That's I'm sorry. <laughs> so and that was the feeling being with Maharaji, you know, even though we were so hopelessly screwed up, we still felt loved. Loved in a way that allowed us into that love in ourselves. And like Dr. Larry used to say, one of the guys there, he said, you know, it wasn't that when I was with Maharaji, I loved him, but I loved everyone. Because when you feel loved yourself, really loved, it's natural that it flows through you. You don't have to work at that. Compassion isn't something that you... Ultimately, have to work at. It. You kind of have to practice remembering, to think about it, because we're not trained that way. But ultimately, when we are in that love, everybody's in that love. Everybody, who would, you know, are you gonna hurt your big toe? Why would you hurt your big toe? You know, everybody's a part of your own body. Why would you hurt someone else? When you know that, things change. When you don't know it. You need to think about it and kind of cultivate what they call sattvic actions. And in Buddhism, they call the four immeasurables, the four infinite qualities of compassion, loving kindness, equanimity. What you're talking about, equanimity in spite of, in the face of all the, you know, something really difficult. It's not indifference, Indifference means there's a wall. You put a wall up there. You're protecting. Equanimity means, okay, you know, the wave comes. It does not push you around. It just flows through you. There's a difference. And then mudita, which is the hardest one, and that's called taking joy, feeling joy in another's happiness. And they say this is the hardest one to cultivate. Because unconsciously we feel that happiness is in limited quantity. And if somebody else is happy, it means there's less for me. And you always, there's always an edge. Oh, you got a new job. (laughs) How nice, you know. And you're thinking about your mortgage and you can't pay it. You know, there's no way. But Mudita is actually experiencing that joy fully. As if it's your own. So all these things you work on developing, but when you finally enter into that the kingdom of love, they are natural because they're natural to us. But we're not natural to ourselves right now. So that's what practice is about. I heard you would weep. You know, people would come to him with their problems. He would weep. And he'd give whatever he could give, besides blessings, you know. And and with all the, he had all the siddhis, all the powers. He could do anything. Raise the dead. Happened every day, every day, not just once, every goddamn day. Heal the sick, raise the dead, open hearts, save people's lives, twenty-four-seven, never stop, never stop. And he weeped. He said, a, a saint's heart is like butter, but it's not like butter. He said, butter melts when it's near the fire, but a saint's heart melts when another heart is on the fire. So, but you got to understand, there was also the other side of it, which is once he was up on the roof of the temple with Mr. Tiwari, who was my, my Indian father and my greatest teacher and he started, He started like dancing in ecstasy, right? And he said, oh, Mrs. So-and-so in Luck- from Lucknow died, has just died, right? Because he knew everything, right? So he knew she died, and he was like in ecstasy like this. So Tuari, who, like, you know, known Maharadi forever, he says, you butcher. <laughs> this woman died. She served you her whole life, and now you're happy? You're in ecstasy that she's died with? You're a butcher, Maharaji turns to him, what? I should act like one of the puppets, like you? You see, his heart could melt. There was no holding back. But at the same time, he's the big picture at the same time. At the same time, not another time. You feel everything completely. But at the same time, there's naturally... No identification with it. No attachment to those emotions. It, it's not something you can talk about. It's not something you can manufacture. But when you become, when we become who we really are, everything's open and free. You can feel everything. It's not that you don't feel things. You feel everything. Listen, these beings know what's going on in the world. Maharaji built a temple there was nothing there as far as the eye could see. It just so happened that over the hill, 16 kilometers away, there's a village that almost every year there's a drought and the crops die and the villagers starve for half the year. He built the temple there, and they wound up every year sending coming sending the children every day to the temple, and they brought back baskets of food every day because the kitchen in the temple was going 24-7. You knew everything. How We can't take this much pain without closing down. I stub my, if I stub my toe in the morning, it's over. Right? And these beings know every bit of suffering in the world. They feel it in their own bones. But cause, their hearts are as wide as the world. Everything is inside of that. They have become this vast presence in which we all live. And they're doing whatever they can. Because they're only here for us. These great saints, they have no personal sh- stuff going on anymore. They, it's finished. The Dalai Lama, you know, someone asked him, Your Holiness, why, why does everyone love you so much? And he said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because I've spent my whole life caring about and considering the happiness of others. Let's roll that back again, right? My whole life, caring about others. He doesn't walk into the bathroom and go, I'm the Dalai Lama, I'm the Dalai Lama. You know, There's nobody in there doing it anymore. There's only compassion there. We got a ways to go, but it's okay. The fire's on, the water's boiling, but this piece of meat's going to take a while to cook. So, And I was talking about Tawari. One time, he came to the temple, and there was a big courtyard. Maharaj was sitting on his bench on one side of it. And the minute he got to the courtyard, he starts screaming at Maharaji. Why did you drag me here? I was happy at home. I had no intention to come. I'm here. How did you get me here? Why did you drag me here? Maharaji goes, Hap. we've been together for 84 lifetimes. It had to happen. That's fun. That's fun. I don't know about you, but that's fun.
2: Thank you for listening to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. We really appreciate your support and hope you'll continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash kd and clicking on the donate button or using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Thank you. Namaste.